rest of you, get your Bible out. You're going to need it. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to spend some time this morning. We have some other New Testament passages we're going to look at. There's an Old Testament passage uh, because that's what I like to do is preach from Scripture. So let's, uh, let's look there in Matthew. We're going to be in verses 14 and 15. I'll give you the head start there. But in getting to that point, there's some, some background we need to give here because we're in our fourth final week of resolving everyday conflict. Um, this message, again, is connected to the other three. If this is your first Sunday here, uh, you probably want to go to the website and listen to the other three sermons that are attached to this. And uh, as a lot of you already know, if you've been with us, that this sermon series is kind of coming as a result of this little book here, Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy and Kevin Johnson. And the, the purpose in this series is to prepare us this year for the conflicts in which we're going to be interacting with, whether it be at home, at work, at school, uh, whether it be friendships or family or strangers, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. We're going to be encountering conflict, and are we handling those conflicts biblically? Are we equipped with the right knowledge and the right heart in order to deal with these conflicts? And that is the purpose that we have um, as your elders and as staff to try to prepare you for these things. And so we have resources in the Welcome Center that you can pick up. You can find one of these books that are in there. If they're all gone, talk to the person at the Welcome Desk and they will make sure that you, you get one of these as well. And so the resources themselves and the sermons themselves are only as good as your application of it, right? If, if you read all the books that are out there and you listen to all the sermons, but you don't actually apply any of it, what good is it? And quite honestly, you've just wasted all of your time, all of your energies, and some of your money, hopefully if you're donating to that, then you, you're wasting those things because you're not actually applying it. So please don't sit here this morning and think, oh, well, that was, that was nice, and you go on about your way doing the exact same things that lead you to the exact same problems. There's a term for that. Doing the same thing over and over again, but getting the same result? What is that? Insanity, right? It's insane to think that you're going to get a different result because you keep doing the same things like, oh, no, it's going to change this time. No, it'll be different this time. It's not. It's the same thing. So what we want to do is give you tools, resources, information, point you in directions that are going to help you not live an insane kind of life and that you'll live a life that has trajectory into the right direction to deal with these kinds of problems, dealing with all these conflicts that come up. It doesn't matter if you're six or if you're 106, you're going to have conflict this year. Probably more if, you have, if you're at six than 106, but you're going to have conflict. And so how do we handle that? And that's, that's the main thing that we want to address today and kind of summing up this whole idea of how do we get to a, a resolution, um, reconciliation, and that's what this morning is all about. We are creatures of habit, and because of that, um, we need to be challenged at times to examine our habits. And that's what, again, these resources are for, these sermons are for, is to help us examine the habits in which we've had, uh, because we, we don't want to just maintain a life and we just kind of survive through life. We, we want to thrive, and that should be our goal here in dealing with conflict, too, is that we we don't just thrive because there's conflict. 
and like that's your identity is in just having conflict with people because that just means you're a jerk. But in, in thriving in conflict is that you know how to navigate that and handle that. And so we want to help you do that. We've tried to help you do that over the last three weeks. So let me kind of review for us in dealing with conflict. And so over the last three weeks, we've, we've learned, first of all, the source of conflict, which this comes from James chapter 4, the source of conflict is from within, it's pride, it's selfishness, and because of that, it then results in this um, debacle of conflict with other people. And so we need to first identify where does it come from, and then this first step in resolving conflict is from the book, this G that we talked about, this first G of going higher. We need to go higher with our, our understanding of what's going on. We need to invite God into the situation. We need to understand that his perspective is the right one. And if we leave him out of the equation, what can we expect to remain in conflict? So we need to invite God into the situation, ask the question, how, how can God help me here? How can God's word help me here? And so we desperately need his vantage point. We desperately need his word in conflicts. And then the second week, we learned the second G that's part of this this, uh, four-step process of dealing with conflict, and that is that we need to get real. We need to deal with our own sin. We need to deal with the the conflict uh, side of things is is our side of how we've created conflict, and we're at fault in some way. So we love to skip that step because we like to just get to the third step, which is sometimes, you know, confronting the person. But if we don't do this second step, we really can't do the third, which is gently engage. If we don't actually deal with our own sin, get real with ourselves about sin, we can't go to somebody else and, and accurately address their sin problem. Because of our pride, our arrogance, we, we saw this out of Matthew's teaching from Jesus, the, the log in your own eye versus the speck in your brother's eye. We have to deal with our own sin. And it's only from that point that we can do the third G, which is to gently engage. And we engage somebody to deal with their sin, their side of the conflict. We do this lovingly, gently. But we have to do this after we've dealt with our own sin. If we approach without dealing with our own, if we approach without being humble, if we approach without being gentle, we can only, again, expect to remain in conflict. And so we approach gently because this is how Jesus Christ has handled us in our conflict. He has been gentle. He has been gracious with us. And so this is how we act with other people. Now, today, we're going to learn about the fourth G in resolving conflict, which is get together. Get together, which is This idea of giving forgiveness and arriving at a reasonable solution. This is what we want. This is where we want to get to. Now, if I were to ask you this morning to define for me, what is Christianity all about? How would you describe Christianity to somebody that maybe doesn't really know anything about Christianity? What would be the words in which you would use to describe what is Christianity? And probably we would come up with words like, well, it deals with sin, it deals with obedience to God, Jesus Christ, love, forgiveness. And these are all accurate words that make up this fourth G, this idea of this fourth G of getting together, of forgiveness, of finding reconciliation. All of those words go into what we're going to talk about today. And so to be a Christian, as we'll see this morning has a very close connection to being a forgiving kind of person. We love to talk about God's forgiveness. 
We just sang songs about God's forgiveness. We, we love to talk about his love for us, don't we? We love that. We, we know, we have heard, we have read about God's demonstration of his love to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a man to live a perfect life free from sin. And then he goes to a Roman cross and he dies in place of sinful people taking upon our shame, our sin. And then he rose three days later from the grave, victorious over sin, over death. And it's only through Jesus Christ that our sins can be forgiven. It's only him that stands between us and God, which he declares himself to be the sheep gate. He declares himself to be the door. He declares himself to be the living water. He declares himself to be the bread of life. It is only through him in which we have salvation. And there is no other mediator. There's nobody else to go through. There's no other sacrifice to be made. He is the only one that can bring us to a state of salvation for eternity. There is no other. And we love to talk about this. We love to be reminded about the, the graciousness of God to us and of how all of our sins have been washed away by the abundance of God's forgiveness. We write songs about it. We write poems about it. We pray about it. We tell others about it. But when it comes to us forgiving someone else, the music seems to stop, the pen seems to dry up, the words don't come, and the prayers don't really want to happen. And this really should not be the case. And I will argue this morning that this should not be the case for you, Christian. We should be different. And this leads me to lead you to Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 14 and 15. The words of Jesus here, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is, is where this is coming from. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A characteristic of God's children, of his people, is forgiveness. This is what we should be characterized by. This teaching that Jesus gives here is part of his teaching on how to pray. If you look before these two verses, we see the Lord's Prayer. You're probably very familiar with that. You probably, you'd probably recite it from memory. But notice this prayer and what's inside of this prayer. And you've heard these words. You've probably said these words. Verse 12, forgive us our debts. This is something we, we all want from God, isn't it? We want God to forgive our debt. We desperately want God to deal with our debt in a very gracious and merciful way, don't we? Even somebody that's not a, not a Christian wants to have God forgive their sin. Maybe they don't really understand what that looks like or, or how the process in all that has taken place. And, but they, they, they desire that. Now, we don't want God to hold out forgiveness from us. We want, we know we need his forgiveness. But notice here in this same verse, verse 12, the line before this, it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's an expectation here. An expectation that if you are praying a prayer of forgiveness to God, then you yourself have been, have been forgiving other people. This is the expectation of a, of a believer in Jesus Christ. You're asking forgiveness from God the Father, but if you haven't forgiven others, then 14 and 15, don't expect God to forgive you. These, these words seem, again, to our 
our surface level understanding of what's being said here as, well, that's kind of harsh. Why won't God forgive me? Well, we need to be ones that are quick to forgive because God has been quick to forgive us. The life of a Christian should be characterized by forgiveness. In the book, Sandy and Johnson, they write this, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. If it's true that we have been so forgiven by God, why are we not like that? This might indicate that maybe you don't know him. Maybe you're not his. Let me take you to what Paul has to say about this idea of forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul writes this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul gives the reason why we should be kind, why we should be tenderhearted, why we should be forgiving, and he ties that to Christ. As God in Christ forgave you, why should you look this way? Why should you act this way? Why should it be that whenever you ask forgiveness from God that you've already been forgiving other people because you have been changed by Christ? He has forgiven you. And because of that, you forgive. Christian, why should be kind? Why should you be kind to that person that's not kind to you? Because Jesus was kind to you when you were not kind to him. Why should you be tender-hearted towards someone who has offended you? Because Jesus was tender-hearted to you when you were an offense to him. Why should you forgive that person who has wronged you? Because Jesus forgave you when you sinned against him. These two are intimately connected. The forgiveness of God and your forgiveness to others. Our forgiveness to others is not originating from our strength. Our forgiveness to others is coming from a right and a humble understanding of God's forgiveness to us. And the moment that we ignore that, forget that, reject that, then we will not extend forgiveness. Paul talks about forgiveness again in Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to turn there. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now look at the very first part of verse 12. These these words here, put on then. The Greek has this meaning of a garment, has this connection to putting on a garment. And this is the kind of thought that we need to have as we look at this verse. What Paul's saying here, he says to put on then these things. Just as you would put on a coat, as you would put on a piece of clothing, you're putting it on yourself. It's not that you walk by your closet and hope that the the clothes jump out and jump on you. Like, oh man, I got dressed today. Like, no, we, we purposely put them on. It is an action in which we must take. The coat surrounds us in its warmth. And this is how we think of these things. 
of a compassionate heart, of kindness, of humility, meekness, patience. These things are things that need to be put on. These things should be used to describe you, just like your clothing might be used to describe you in a crowd. Well, the guy over there, he has, he has a green coat. That's the one I'm talking about. For us as a Christian, we should be known as, the, that's a humble person. That person is, that person is patient. They're kind. They are forgiving. They are meek. That's how we should be described. Look at verse 13 here. He says, bearing with one another. Now, Paul, he uses this, this Greek word, this Greek phrase here, bearing with, several different times in his writings. And it's translated in different ways. In, in one, one place, it's translated as tolerate. Another is put up with. Another is endure. Another way in which you can look at this, and the Greek points to this idea of suffering. Suffering. This word, it, it's connected to this idea that if you're going to tolerate, put up with, bear with, you're, you're going to suffer with someone. Of course, none of us really want suffering. Usually, most of the time, we, if we could choose between suffering and comfort, we usually take the comfort and we kind of sidestep the suffering but to suffer with someone is like you are in battle with them. And I, and I didn't say you are battling them, but you're in battle with them. And I say this because Paul, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, tells us that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against spiritual things. It's not that we're in war with somebody physically, but spiritually there's this battle going on. And so when I say you're suffering with them in battle, I mean you're not fighting against them, but for them. I think this is what Paul means. To bear with them, to endure with them, to put up with them, to tolerate them. When you endure with them, you endure for them. When you tolerate them, you do it for them. When you bear with them, it's for them. It's not for you, it's for them. And this, this mindset... That if we can wrap our heads around, whenever we get into a conflict, that, hey, we're, we're not actually at war here. It might seem to be on the surface, but no, there's some spiritual things going on. And I need to address this in a spiritual way. I need to endure with them, tolerate them, bear with them, because there's a battle going on. And I want the best for them. It is with this mindset that we can deal with complaints biblically, deal with conflict biblically, it is with this mindset that we can forgive quickly. Notice again how Paul ties our forgiveness to others with our forgiveness to Christ. Christ has forgiven you. This is an inseparable thing. This is why he says the phrase, so you also must forgive. How much wiggle room is in that verse there about your forgiveness to other people? A big fat goose egg, right? There's no wiggle room for you to go, well, I'm not really feeling it today. It says you also must forgive. Christian, if you do not forgive others of their sins against you, that might be an indication of either one of two things. One, as a believer, you have a really bad relationship with your father right now. Second of all, it could mean that you're not even a Christian. If, if you've had a history of unforgiveness to somebody, but you declare yourself to be a Christian, and you still harbor hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness, and this has been the practice of you, the cycle of you for years, decades, 
And I think a self-examination would be the right thing to do this morning. Because as what Jesus says, or what Paul is saying, of this, this connection between my forgiveness from God and my forgiveness to other people, they are inseparable. And if I understand how forgiven I have been from God, how can I not forgive other people? And if your habit is to keep harboring bitterness, to keep living in a state of unrest where there is no peace, and you're still hanging on to people's sin, I would, I would challenge you this morning. Examine your heart. Paul says in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The reason why you're, you're not forgiving that person is because you are ruling your heart. And that Christ is not ruling your heart. You put yourself on the throne. If you rejected Jesus sitting on the throne, and the question is, do you think the king of kings is going to tolerate somebody being an imposter to his kingdom? No. Jesus should be the one that rules your heart, that rules your life. So why won't you forgive them? Because you think you're the judge. You think that you're the judge, you're the jury. Jesus isn't really good enough to do that. Also, it means that his sacrifice wasn't good enough, and so you're going to do it. What arrogance whenever we don't forgive. This is a, a form of idolatry. It's a form of idolatry when we don't forgive other people because we think that we are above God. We think that, no, they should bow down to us. We limit our forgiveness. But the truth is, is that God's forgiveness is unlimited. What percentage of your sin has Christ not forgiven on the cross? Was it like you know, 30%, 50%, 75%, 99.99% of your sin was forgiven, but you know that one little piece he didn't take care of? How much of it was forgiven by Christ on the cross? All of it, 100%. It's all washed away. It's gone. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this idea of forgiveness. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. How much of your sin against God was inexcusable? All of it. Yes, I know they said that thing to you. You got your feelings hurt. I know they said they did that thing. You know, they... They hit your cat and they didn't apologize. Like, whatever. And it's inexcusable. How dare you? How much of your sin was inexcusable to God? But he reacted very different, didn't he? He responded with kindness, with gentleness, with forgiveness. This is the connection Jesus makes. Matthew 6, what Paul makes. Ephesians, Colossians. And what we see all throughout Scripture of how God acts towards sinners. We see that at the very beginning of Genesis 3. We have been forgiven much. Now let me give you from this little book that we've been talking about, let me give you their ideas of what forgiveness is and isn't, and I think these are very accurate to what forgiveness is and isn't. And, and I want to start with kind of the negative side of things, what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. Forgiveness is not something that we wait around for until it jumps on us and then it happens. 
just like, you know, walking by your closet expecting that your coat's going to jump on you. If your coat jumps on you, by the way, you got problems in your house, like you, either a rodent problem or something else, and I'm not coming to exercise that. So the, we need to understand that forgiveness is not just going to magically happen. It's not just a feeling that, you know, we wait around for it and then it comes. We say things like, well, I can't forgive them. If, if that's your heart right now, I just can't forgive them, then take this first step. And that is to pray and admit to God that you need a change of heart. Your heart needs to change in order to forgive that person. Just confess that this morning to God. It's not a feeling. We are commanded to forgive. We're not asked whether we feel like it or not. We are are told from Scripture to do this. If you wait around for the feeling of forgiveness, you will never, ever have the feeling. It's not natural for us. Second thing that forgiveness isn't, it isn't forgetting. You know, this phrase of forgive and forget. You know, we try to practice that and it just never works. Well, understand that God chooses to not remember our sins. He doesn't just simply forget that they happened. Let me take you to Isaiah 43, verse 25, where God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. God is consciously, purposely choosing to not hold your sin against you. He is blotting it out. Just like you would, you take a, a black marker and redact something, right? You get rid of it. It's gone. It's still there, but it's gone. You're not going to remember it anymore. We are not to forget or hope to forget that somebody has sinned against us. You know, you, you go to sleep one night and you're like, you just kind of praying, God, just let me forget, let me forget, let me forget. You wake up in the morning and you haven't forgot. Maybe 10 years down the road, you still haven't forgot. It, it's not that forgiveness means forgetting. We're just not to hold their sin against them like God does with us. He chooses not to hold it against us. So not forgetting doesn't mean that you keep bringing up past sins either. Well, the pastor said, I, I didn't have to forget, so that means I get to hang on to these things and use these as an arsenal against other, somebody else whenever they sin against me again. That is not at all what I mean here. If a person has had a pattern of sin in the past and, and they, they've repented of that, they've confessed that, there's, there's been reconciliation with that, but then all of a sudden they do that same thing again, it would be wise of you to point back to the pattern of sin and say, Don't you remember that this has been the pattern? Don't you remember that this is what's been happening before? If they shrug that off, then then we have a problem. But the hope is to bring them to restoration and to repentance. And and so we, we don't bring up the past in order for us to win some sort of argument. We bring up the past to help them. We bring up the past to do them good, not do them harm. So we don't forget in forgiving. We we use our memory. To help us avoid the sin and help other people avoid sin. The third thing that forgiveness isn't, it isn't excusing. Excusing means that you say things like, well, that's okay. It's no big deal. This is all implying that what they did, what they said, it wasn't really something wrong. It really wasn't sin when it was. Excusing can also be when we say things like, well, you know, you just couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. This is treating their behavior as if they have no responsibility for what they've chosen to do, what they've chosen to say. 
And people should be held responsible for what they've done, what they have said, because it's a very biblical idea that you will be held accountable before God for what you have done, what you have said. And so we don't just excuse people's sin and say, well, it's okay, you couldn't help it. They could, and they chose not to. Even, even in the act of substance issues, they still chose that in the first place. And some of our laws reflect that in our country. Now, let's get to what forgiveness is. So if forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's a decision. It's a decision. The Greek word most often translated as forgive means to let go, to release. Now some of you, whenever I said let go, you were thinking frozen, Elsa. Now you're all singing it. Um, This is the idea we need to think about, though, is forgiving someone is the decision of releasing their sin out of your grasp. So whenever we talk about forgiveness, if you want to visualize this uh, of of your hand holding on to their sin, and whenever you forgive, you're releasing your grasp of their sin. You're not holding it against them, over them, trying to judge them. No, Christ is the judge. He is the king. He is the one that's also paid for that sin as well. So we, we release it. People say things like, well, I I can't forgive them. That is a white-knuckling of somebody's sin. That is an unforgiving heart. I can't forgive them. That's a very different mindset than what the Christian should say, which should be, I will forgive them. Those are two two different ways of thinking. It's not a matter of ability, but of desire. And without the right desire, you won't have the ability. You, You won't want that. And so you can't do that because you don't want to do that. And so we need to make this decision of, I'm, I'm going to, I will forgive them. And again, if you're struggling just to say those words, to pray those words to God, God, help me to desire. Help me to have that desire to, to give forgiveness, to open up my grasp and forgive them. Understand that you will only do what you want to do, and that's all you will ever do So until you have a desire to live at peace with someone, you will not actually live at peace. So we ask God for help. And we decide that I'm going to forgive, and it's by God's grace that this happens. Second thing, what forgiveness is, it is costly. Think about the forgiveness that you've been given by God. Was it costly? What did it cost him? What was the most expensive thing in all of the universe that he used to pay your sin debt? His son. Forgiveness is costly. God paid a price for you. And this should be the attitude that we have as his children being willing to pay the debt of somebody else. This is what our father has done for us. We have created the debt against him and he paid the price. Somebody else sinned against you Pay the price. It is going to be painful. It's going to be costly to forgive others. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to take time. But it will not cost you near as much or inflict as near as much pain as what it costs God to pay for your debt. There's two components of forgiveness that 
that the authors of this book talk about. And, and again, I think they're spot on with their, their analysis. These two components of forgiveness, of yes, it's a decision, yes, it's costly, but there's two components that start to play out. And one is the heart component, the other is the relational component. The heart component means that you have purposed in your heart, you've desired in your heart, you, you want it, even though you, you don't in that moment, you're praying for it, and you're choosing to forgive the person of their sin against you. You are forgiving them before God. It is you and God having this heart-to-heart of, God, I, I, I want to forgive them. I'm struggling right now, but God, I, I want to. And this is meaning that it doesn't depend upon the other person's attitude or upon their repentance or if they ever will repent. This is something that is happening between you and God, and we should be maintaining a readiness to forgive the other person, even if they don't want to talk, or they don't want to forgive, they, they don't want anything to happen there. The posture of our heart should be to lean in towards them for forgiveness, not leaning into them so we could swing at them, or leaning away from them so we could avoid them, but we, we posture our heart in a humble state before God, say, God, you've forgiven me much, and I want to forgive them. This then leads to the second component of forgiveness, and that is the relational component. This comes when the other person is willing to repent of their sin. That maybe this third G, this process that we've been in of confronting them gently, engaging them with, with great patience and care, and they realize their sin, they confess their sin, and this component cannot happen until the other person has really owned up to their sin. They've confessed their sin, and this is where the second G comes into play on their side. But when they do this, when they went through this process, they've asked for forgiveness, they confess their sin, and then we grant them forgiveness. This is a releasing of their offense. This is a opening up your fingers of their sin and releasing it, letting it go. And maybe, maybe there's some of us here that, again, we have our hands just full of other people's sin and we're just, just clamped down on it. Maybe it's been decades of this going on. And we say, well, I've, I've forgiven them. You know, we talk now. And so it's like you've opened up your pinky. So yeah, you know, I've forgiven them. I mean, we, we don't talk a lot, but I say hi. The relational component is more than just a, a, a pseudo kind of forgiveness of opening just a, a portion of forgiveness to them. It's whenever they've confessed their sin, we let go of the offense. We let it go so that the relationship can grow. And this takes time. It might take days, weeks, months, years. It's a process. And so don't think, well, hey, pastor said this today. I'm going to go home and boom, I'm going to forgive him. And and all this is going to be reconciled tomorrow. Maybe not. So you need to approach them about their sin, but you do it because you've done the first two steps and then you gently engage them about their sin. Maybe you need to take other people with you, involve them in the process. We talked about this last week. But until they repent, you cannot implement this relational component of forgiveness. It won't happen. Again, the authors of this book, they say, although being willing to forgive rests on you, so the willing part, the desire, reconciliation depends on both your willingness and the offender's repentance. Until both come to a place of repentance, both come to a place of 
we want peace, we want reconciliation, there really can't be. The authors describe forgiveness in, in this idea of making four promises. And I, I think these are, again, spot on with what forgiveness should look like, what it should sound like, uh, the attitude that we should have. And so there's four promises that they talk about in this book of what forgiveness should be. And the first promise is this, I promise I won't dwell on this incident. I won't dwell on it. So maybe, maybe again, you've been hanging on to this sin that somebody's done. You've been white-knuckling this thing. You, you've been playing this thing out again and again and again in your mind. You haven't let it go. You haven't positioned your heart before God to confess it, that, that you need to forgive them, and you've been hanging on to it. But in forgiveness, we open our hand, we say to God, you're just, you're good, you're right. You've, you've told me to forgive, and I'm not going to dwell on this anymore. And this is part of that heart component, but also the relational component. The second promise that we make is, I, I promise I won't bring this incident, uh, bring up this incident and use it against you. So I'm not going to hang on to this past stuff again. Again, I'm not forgetting it, but I'm not going to hang on to it and then use it as ammunition against you. And this plays into the third promise that we make is that I promise I won't talk to others about this incident. It's in gossip, right? So I'm not going to gossip about how bad you've hurt me. And I know as, as parents sometimes and, and inside of divorce, there's this using of children to talk about the incident. And using them, pitting them against each other. And, and well, your father always says, your mother always acts that's not forgiveness. And in forgiveness, it's this promise of not doing that. The fourth promise is, I promise I won't allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So real forgiveness is getting to this place where we do get together. We find a place of reconciliation. And so our goal in forgiving someone is that we get to, to a place of reconciliation. But we are limited in reconciliation. We may do everything right, but we just can't get the other person to repent. We just can't get them to see their fault and see that there's, there's a portion that they need to repent of. We just can't get to that place. And so where does that leave us? What do we do? Well, listen to what Paul has to tell us in Romans 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul understands. He understands that we are going to be facing situations where we just can't get back together. We just, we just can't resolve this. We, there can't be reconciliation. And so what do we do? This other party, they're not budging, they're not moving. What, what do we do? Well, the principle here is, is what we see as we've done everything that we can do, right? Look at the first part of this. If possible, so far as it depends on you then say so far as it depends on them and how they respond to you or how they treat you or what they say to you he says as it depends on you that you have determined you have set this as your direction to bring about reconciliation the principle is dealing with us have we done everything in our power to pursue reconciliation and sometimes it doesn't work but it's not because we left something unaddressed. We didn't do something that we should have done. No, we follow the biblical strategy for making peace, and we do not stop short of that process. 
we are accountable to God for our peacemaking efforts. You are responsible for your obedience, and you're not responsible for someone else's. So you look at the situation, you've went higher, you've, you've dealt with your own sin, you've got real, you've tried to gently engage them, you maybe had to bring other people into the situation, you've tried to get together, you've tried to help them see their sin and help them repent of sin and, and extend forgiveness, but nothing will change. You're not responsible for how they handle that. You're not responsible for what they do. But you are 100% responsible for what you do, for what you say, how you respond. So the question is, what is successful peacemaking? What's successful peacemaking? How can, how can I enter into a conflict with somebody and, and come out at the end and say, you know, that was successful? Well, it's not whether or not you actually got to a resolution. You actually got to, to reconciliation. That's great. That's what we want. But that doesn't mean... That's not the only way in which we determine it was successful. Being successful in peacemaking is a matter of faithfulness to what you have been commanded to pursue. Have you been faithful to the commands of God? It's that relationship that matters most. Is my relationship with God of the highest of importance, or is it this person's relationship? Well, it should be your relationship with God. And if we get this right and we walk in obedience, then these other relationships start to work out a little bit better, sometimes a lot better. We need to be faithful to him in the midst of conflict. This is how we find success. It's that we've been faithful to him. If you've done everything in the realm of your responsibility, then you've been successful. You've, you've, you've done what you needed to do. This other person, they may not change, they may not repent, but again, you're not responsible for them. Your personal walk with God is being affected by your peacemaking or your lack of peacemaking. And don't believe for a minute that just by ignoring the problem that it's getting better. I'm sure maybe we've probably all tried that. Well, just ignore it and it get better. It's like getting an infection in a wound. Does it get better? No, your arm falls off. Like, things don't get better. Like, you need help. You need assistance. You need a doctor. And so we can't just escape the situation or attack in the situation. We need to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Obedience to God's word is what Christians should be striving for and living for, to not care about being obedient to God. When, when we're told and we've heard, we've read, seek peace. And we say, not today. Just, I don't feel like it. I just can't. And essentially what we're saying is that we don't really care about God's word and we don't really care about God. We're not really serious about this issue that we have in our heart. Again, this is a, a form of idolatry when we do not forgive other people. Let me close this morning by reminding you of the four G's of, first of all, going higher. We need to bring God into the situation, get his perspective we need to then get real. We need to own our part of the conflict. What am I responsible for? And then that should then humble us to a place where we gently engage people, helping them see their part of the conflict. And then the fourth thing, we can get together. We can find forgiveness. We can arrive at a reasonable solution to the problem. 
to successfully get to a place of peace will involve much prayer about the matter itself, much prayer about the other person, and much prayer about you. If, if all of your prayers seem to be focused in a conflict around the other person and around the problem, but has nothing to do with you, it has a lot to do with you. You're a big part of the problem because you're not recognizing you're part of the problem. And so for us, as we think about peacemaking and, and trying to get to a place of resolution, we have to humble ourselves. We have to spend a lot of time praying, seeking God's wisdom, His counsel. Let me say this, if you're currently in a conflict, and it's not one of those conflicts that we can just give grace to and, and we can move on, like the dishwasher example I gave you. Like, if it's beyond that, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it today? I, w- I would ask you to, to set up a time with one of our elders, one of our staff, to, to talk about the problem, to help you work through it. And if you can't grab one of us, then again, the welcome desk is right out here. Go to the welcome desk. They can help you set up an appointment that you can, you can get with one of us and we can meet with you and talk about these steps and help you work through these things, pray through these things. We are here to help you. My prayer for us as a church is that we would become a church that people can rely on in the midst of conflict. That each of us, each of us, not just the staff and the elders, not, the, not just us, but each of us in this room, that we would become better at handling our own conflicts, but also we'd be prepared to handle the conflicts of others. That we'd be able to help them in the midst of the conflict. They could find peace. They could find reconciliation. And we would help them do it biblically. There's a lot of bad advice out there, isn't it? I mean, there's tons of it. Magazines about it. In, in your own heart, as Jeremiah tells us, it's deceitfully wicked. We need people in our lives that can speak truth to us and do it in a, a gentle, loving way. But again, we have to be willing to receive those things. And so the elders of this church, they are men that will tell you the truth and they'll do it in love. We, we want to help you. We want to resource you. We want to give you things that will, will help you see the reality of the situation and what to do with it. And again, let me leave you just this, this one thought that I think is, is so important for us. We are the most forgiven people on earth. Now let's be the most forgiving people on earth. Let's pray. Lord, again, your, your grace is beyond our imagination. God, if we can imagine your grace, I don't think we've imagined our sin very well. I don't think we've imagined the, the atrocities in which we have done against you. We don't imagine very well the treason in which we've committed against you. God, give us a clear vision of ourself this morning. Give us clarity about maybe the conflict in which we're in. God, I I pray for this church that we would be a people that understand the source of conflict and then the process in which we need to take to resolve it. And that we're we're not having to just turn to the pastor all the time or or to a quote-unquote expert deal with conflict, but God, we would become experts. 
we would, we would know what forgiveness looks like because we have, we have been forgiven so much. We could demonstrate that well. We could, we could talk about that accurately and rightly. We'd help lead people to humility and to repentance. And, and God, you would get the glory for all of that. God, I, I would ask as well this morning if, if there is any of us that are clinching, grasping on to someone else's sin, that, God, we have not peeled back our fingers and released this sin from somebody else. God, our hearts are filled with bitterness, with anger. Lord, I pray you'd bring change. I pray you'd bring a new desire. And God, I, I want to pray, just like I prayed the first service, that, that Lord, if there's, if there's that situation here where there's not even a concern for that, not even a, a desire for that, God, I want to intercede for them and pray that you would grant that. You'd give them that desire. That they would not look at their situation in such a selfish way anymore and how offensive somebody's been to them, but they would see clearly the inexcusable sin against you and it would humble them. And they would release this other person's sin. They would have a right heart condition toward this other person. God, I also want to pray for those that are maybe not in this room, that maybe in which we are in conflict with, They've not heard this message. They've not went through this book. They have not heard your scripture. They have not heard these prayers. And I pray you would soften their hearts, God. And we know that your spirit is far bigger than this room, far bigger than our ears, our head. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit be working in their hearts. There'd be a change starting to take place, a softening of their heart. And that we would approach them with love, with care, with gentleness, and there could be true restoration and reconciliation. God, we are desperate for your help. We can't change hearts, but God, that's your business. That's what you do. So we ask you to help us, Lord. Change our own hearts. Change theirs. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.